welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And Kobus, I think、uh, we're going up to Paris for the very first time as a guest on our show. Actually, since I、uh, relocated from Paris all the way over here to Vietnam, but、uh, we're joined by Abigail Vassilier, who is a、uh, has a, a bunch of degrees under her belt.、Uh, from one, most recently from SOAS, where she completed a, a master's in Asian politics, focusing on、uh, China-Tunisian、uh, relations, which we'll talk about today. But also from Sciences Po Aix-en-Provence, where she did international relations, and now she. Is a European a consultant to the European Council on Foreign Relations.、Uh, bonjour, Abigail. Bonjour. Well, it is、uh, wonderful to have you on the show, and today we're going to talk about really a topic that that doesn't get a lot of attention, in part because it doesn't really warrant a lot of attention, which is China's relationship with Tunisia. And the reason why I say it doesn't warrant a lot of attention is because while reading through、uh, Abigail's very very interesting、uh, master's thesis,、uh, it really brings up the point that it's one of the regions in Africa where the Chinese, for the most part, are not anywhere near as engaged as they are in the rest of the continent. Nonetheless. There are some very, very important ideas that come out of Tunisia, and what Tunisia represents is also something very interesting to explore. So, Abigail, when I say that it doesn't warrant a lot of attention, the reason I say that is because one of the statistics that you put forward in your in, in your research was that in 2012, China's investment in the energy sector totaled 4.8 million dollars, which really is the equivalent of sofa change when it comes to what China's been spending elsewhere on the continent, which totals not only in the millions but the billions of dollars. So tell us a little bit about why China has not made the same inroads in Tunisia that it has in other North African countries and the continent as a whole.、Um, well, the first reason for that is、uh, Tunisia doesn't represent the same interest for China、uh, compared to the rest of the continent. Basically,、uh, Tunisia doesn't have、um, doesn't have like so much oil resources and other energy resources. Uh, nonetheless, uh, China is kind of attracted by Tunisia for other reasons.、Uh, probably the first one is because of the strategic position of Tunisia、uh, between Libya and Algeria. So basically, China is there to protect the interests that they have in Libya and Algeria. Um, Tunisia is also important, of course, for energy. Wherever they are going in Africa, they find energy. So,、um, in Tunisia, they are basically looking for phosphates.、Um, and when you look at the the foreign direct investment、uh, from China in Tunisia, you see that they are they they are connected to energy and to phosphate、uh, extraction. Okay, but at the same time, Tunisia. So one point is geopolitics,、uh, but another part is is ideological as well. In the sense that you know you you highlighted three key reasons as to why the Chinese for the you know have not moved into Tunisia in the in the in the pace that they have elsewhere.、Uh, number one, you said aversion to instability, which I find rather unusual because you know the Chinese are in some of the most unstable places, from Chad to the Democratic Republic of Congo to Sudan. So that one, I'd like you to expand on as well. Threat of revolutionary ideas, and this is the most interesting one to come out of out of、uh, Tunisia. And then finally, you talk about French influence. So if you could very quickly go through those three key obstacles to Chinese investment in Tunisia, that would be very interesting. First. 
First of all, the aversion of instability, this is quite interesting because even though when you look at the Chinese uh, prisons in Africa, you, you kind of make the link between instability and, uh, and Chinese prisons. Nonetheless, they don't really like the fact that it's completely unstable because they are all the time on the edge of something if it's unstable. And basically, if on their domestic policy, they are looking for stability. They are also looking for a stable environment in the regional context and in, uh, in also in Africa. And if mainly they are in conflict countries or post-conflict countries in Africa, it's because the Western countries are not there anymore. Um, regarding the threat of revolutionary ideas, um, it's clear that... Um, that China in Tunisia was really scared of a Jasmine revolution spreading in uh, in China, and that's why right after the revolution they started to kind of control and censor the media in their own country. Uh, they also kind of launched a policy to highlight the benefit effect of Chinese policy in the Middle East, which was quite funny, I have to say. And they were really scared of this event. And actually, they had reasons because uh, I think it was the Public Security Bureau that recorded um, an increase of, uh, of demonstration around all around um, China. Regarding the... Uh, French ideas and the French uh, limitation of uh, Chinese engagement in Tunisia, I have to say, I have to recognize as a French person that um, France is definitely involved in Tunisia, really careful about who is coming to Tunisia. And, uh, and, and even though they don't say it, you will have no one in France telling you that uh, th that France constrain uh, the Chinese engagement in the country. It's obvious for like structural reasons such as like history, um, economic partnership that are already established between France and Tunisia or Europe and Tunisia. And um, and probably also from the Tunisian part, you, you have a clear pro-French mindset because of historical and strong links. Um, connecting to that, one of the one of the facts in your dissertation I was most surprised by is the amount of Chinese people who live in Tunisia, and you mentioned that it's about two hundred to three hundred Chinese people, if I'm correct. And I think there's probably more Chinese people living in Lesotho um, and Swaziland, you know, kind of than there would be in in quite a big country like Tunisia. Like, why are there so few? Are they being kept out in some kind of way? Um, okay, first of all, my um, one of the limits of my dissertation is that I I was in, in London and in France when I wrote it. I didn't go to Tunisia, so I wasn't able to assess what was the clear amount of Chinese person present in Tunisia. And this number, like between two two hundred and three hundred person, are given by the Chinese ambassador Huo Zhengde. In 2012, so I don't really know to what extent this number is um, is true or is not. Uh, nonetheless, this is true that there are not a lot of Chinese there. I think it's the main reason is because the interest, the Chinese interest in the country, are not so wide. They they kind of struggle to establish a real like like real business links between China and Tunisia. So it's kind of hard. Um, it, it, yeah, it's kind of hard to imagine a um, large number of Chinese when 
there are no economic, not a lot of economic interest and not a lot of energy interests. Which is which is surprising that that they wouldn't have taken up a bigger slice of the energy interests. Uh, but I think before we go on, let, let me just back up a little bit. And for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with the recent events that have happened. Uh, in Tunisia, which will set the context for our conversation. Uh, really, you know, the milestone day was December 17th, 2010. And I remember I was a journalist at France 24. And, I, you know, and, and it crossed on the news wires that uh, this, this young fruit vendor named Mohamed Bouazizi, you know, lit himself on fire in opposition to and out of frustration to the corruption and the treatment at the hands of the authorities under the government of Zin El Abidin Ben Ali. Now, at the time, back in 2010 and early 2011, we couldn't have foreseen what was going to happen. Uh, but the mass movement started, and, and then really within the space of, of a year, uh, it went from being a, a totalitarian government uh, that had long been ruled by Ben Ali and supported enthusiastically by the French. And this was what's so interesting is that there was a lot of controversy in the Sarkozy government leading up to the revolution because, Abigail, if you remember, uh, the Sarkozy government was not, uh, you know, during the early parts of the revolution, were supporting uh, Ben Ali. And so I guess what's interesting to me now that after elections were held in 2011, if I recall, um, or early 2012, and the, the Muslim party in, uh, in Hada, uh, they, um, they gained power. And now today we are starting to see Tunisia tip more and more towards a, a much more fundamentalist Muslim government than, than people had hoped or expected when the revolution first started. So with that kind of history there, I guess what I'm, what I'm curious about is that since there was so much opposition to uh, ben Ali, which we saw, you know, on the streets of Tunis and throughout the country. The French, who are largely responsible for supporting Ben Ali for, for decades, um, you would think that people would also be hungry to turn against the French as well. Um, for, and you would think that they would look for alternatives the same way that other African states have really looked away from the former colonial powers and, and embraced China in some respects because China doesn't come with the same moralistic tone that the Europeans come with. There's no strings attached on aid and whatnot. And I guess I'm a little surprised that Tunisians, in light of the fact that they uh, have rejected Ben Ali, have not rejected the French in the same way and embraced the Chinese as other African states have. This was um, what you raise here was uh, what also raised my interest on uh, on Tunisia because for me when I started to work for my dissertation it was quite clear that according to the fact that uh, the French supported Ben Ali to until I mean really late right up it was the kind end. of clear, yeah it was quite clear that the Tunisian would turn to other partner and the I mean and the obvious one was the Chinese because of, of uh, the condition um, that uh, they could, um, the condition that they have for support. And, uh, and I was really surprised, as uh, you probably are, about the fact that the Chinese didn't seize this opportunity and the, and the Tunisian also didn't really, um, really launch another opportunity for other partner. But... Um, and I talk once with um, a Tunisian scholars uh, from Tunisian University, and uh, and she also has this question: Why the Tunisians are still with the French, and uh, they are still close to the French, and they didn't turn to China? And when she asked another and uh, another members, uh, the, the the answer she get was that. 
that there was something about uh, democracy and that's concerned the Tunisian government. And um, and and we we talk about this because this was for me an interesting idea. The fact that Anada didn't really want to establish strong links with China because of a democratic argument, um, and she said that after the revolution, democracy was uh, an important value for the new government, and they didn't want to have links with any kind of authoritarian or totalitarian regimes, and probably China was. A bit like this, and would have had a touch that um, that Enada was not ready to endorse. I mean, I'm going to call BS and, on that one, though, because I mean, the fact that Enada <laughs> itself has been accused of anti-democratic policies now, with suppression of free speech. Uh, more importantly, the continued cozying up with the Paris government. Uh, and with French authorities and the French government, who for decades supported anti-democratic policies in Tunisia. I mean, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. I'm not saying to you, but it just, I, I hear the logic of what they're saying, but it just, it seems outrageous to me, honestly, if that's their line of argument. And, and I, I went to this, uh, I did lots of interviews for my dissertation, and every time I was meeting someone, I was asking about this argument, because I, I, for me, this was ridiculous. This was completely ridiculous because you cannot think about this without thinking that China is one of the most uh, important economic power at the moment and the revolution is based on economic problems. So when you have someone who is ready to support you while your main problem is economic issues, of course you take it. And everyone has the same answer. This is a ridiculous argument. This is so interesting for me. I mean, how how does it look from the Chinese side? I mean, you mentioned in your dissertation that there hasn't been any high-level government exchanges, government visits between between China and Indonesia. I, I mean, China and Tunisia yet. Uh, like, wh- why didn't the you know why was Chinese trying to push that more, or wh- why isn't there you know kind of more approach from the Chinese side? To be fair, I have. The f- I have the feeling because I don't know. I'd never ask Beijing about that, but I have the feeling that China is taking time and taking time to see uh, to see the end of the political crisis that is still going on in Tunisia before taking a real step forward with the new Tunisian government. And I think that's why they don't really want to establish like high level visits, even though you, I mean, there are some high level visits, but still not uh, a president president visit. So um, I think that's still taking the time to see who's going to be the next uh, leader that's going to be stable and with whom they will be able to establish real links. Now, they haven't, they may not have done president to president, Visits, but you know you got to give the Chinese credit that not six months after you know the, the Mohammed Bouazizi event in December of 2010, March 2011. So we're talking four months after. Uh, Jai Jin, who is the vice foreign minister, uh, the Chinese vice foreign minister, was in Tunis meeting with the the new the interim government. Then in May 2011, just a few months after that, then Vice President Xi Jinping, which is obviously today President Xi Jinping, and uh, Foreign Minister Yang Jiechi met the interim government in Beijing. So it you know again we t- we started the show by talking about the insignificance of Tunisia in the broader Chinese portfolio in Africa. But yet, nonetheless, guys like Jai Jun, Xi Jinping, Yang Jiechi, these are the top, top guys. 
I would be very surprised, Cobus, if you know a, a country with as low a level of profile could get the same level of exposure either in Paris or in Washington with that type of leadership. So on the one hand, there, met, there was not a state summit, uh, but they've been meeting with a lot of those, uh, a lot of the interim government leaders, and I thought that was very interesting. But I mean, would you then feel that the fact that they? You know that, that it went to that level and not further. Is that indicative of of, of some of the attitudes of the Tunisians, or is it a situation like a little bit like in Egypt where they met, they set up all these relationships with the new leader, and then whoops, the new leader was gone, well, um, and that they might might want to stay around and hang around and see what's what will develop in the future. I think it's part that. I think also the fact is that Xi Jinping's time is extremely limited, and frankly, a country that's receiving only four point eight million dollars of four point uh, of foreign direct investment really doesn't warrant getting onto his agenda at this point. So, nonetheless, you have people in the lower level, keeping the relationships going. You, at the same time, make, you know, want to see how this evolves. Tunisia, like Libya, uh, like Egypt right now, is in flux. Uh, we don't know what the next 12 to 18 months would be like. So they've learned their lessons by not investing too much as they did in Morsi. They really put their name on the line with, with the Morsi government in Egypt. Mm. And I think that the, that kind of said, okay, you know what? This is a very volatile region. We need to be engaged here, but at the same time, we also want to kind of watch how the chips fall. You know, and they've got their hands full in Sudan. They've got their hands full in the DRC. They've got, you know, Zhong Jianhua, I think he's, he's got a pretty busy calendar. And at the end of the day, Tunisia doesn't really warrant, especially as what Abigail said, you know, that the Tunisians aren't really embracing them that much. You know, there's not this kind of red carpet that's coming out for them. Um, you, you know, Abigail, we're, we're just going to wrap up now. And what, when we kind of step away from this, tell us what's the kind of the future you think. Do you think when you look in the next three to five years that the same trends of what we're seeing in Africa with the Chinese, where the Chinese are playing a much, much bigger role, um, or happening in Tunisia as well, or do you see the Tunisians keeping the, the Chinese at arm's, uh, at arm's length uh, for the foreseeable future? To be fair, if I have to imagine a future between China and Tunisia in the next three years, I imagine it like it was before the political transition. Like they're still in the moment where they're looking for um, who's going to be the next leader in Tunisia and when the government is going to be stable. But once this is going to be established, I think I think the French uh, will still be there. The Tunisian will still be a bit skeptical about any kind of Chinese presence and the Chinese will still be there in order to protect their interests in Libya and Algeria. I don't see any kind of expansion suddenly uh, of the of the Sino-Tunisian relations for the next two or three years because basically the interest won't change um, at all. I just, I just have the feeling that once uh, the government and the political crisis will be over, we will see a president-to-president meeting to set up uh, like real relation and to say, well, we recognize each other. And uh, but once this is done, I think we will stay with like five, maybe 500 Chinese in in Tunisia, but that's all. Okay. Well, you know, Kobus, for me, this is one of these instances where you, where people talk about the Chinese taking over Africa, the Chinese colonizing Africa. And, and you and I have talked about this on a number of different occasions that it's, first of all, Africa is too broad to have any single characterization to it. But this also shows you that where there are deeply held French influences and other former colonial influences, it's not easy for the Chinese to get in. So kind of throwing around broad generalizations like that certainly doesn't apply in the case of Tunisia. 
Yeah, and also that there are different African cultures, you know, and some are more open to, to engaging with China than others. Um, and I think that that's, you know, it's difficult to, to keep that in mind, but I think it's very important. Well, Abigail Vesselier, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. What we have this little tradition at the end of every show is we want to guide people to, uh, to follow what you're reading, what you're writing, what you're doing. Is, are you present on the, uh, on the various social networks that are out there that people can follow what you're doing? Yeah, I'm present on Twitter. Um, well, my Twitter account is uh, V, um, and then a small. Um, I don't know how do you say that in English, actually. What would tire? You, a tire, uh, which is the uh, the tilde. That's what it is. A tire. Uh-huh. I think a tire is a. Oh no no! I'm sorry. It's a dash. A dash. I'm sorry. A dash. <laughs> Lovely. So V dash Abigail A B I G A E E L. And that's all. Okay, and uh, in, and she's been writing a lot about a very interesting topic, which is uh, China and Tunisia, something that we don't focus that much on, but as you can see, is rich with a lot of interesting ideas. Kobus, where can people find you if they want to follow you on the web? Um, you can find me on our Facebook page, um, and you'll see my name in brackets when I respond to comments, and I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And Kobus mentioned our Facebook page. I've been derelict in mentioning it this entire show. We are now at 125,000 followers, so incredibly excited about that, and there's these fantastic conversations that are going on at uh, facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, we're posting almost 18 hours a day, so if you really want to follow what's going on uh, in the region and around the world, in geopolitics and culture, it's not just uh, about uh, investment in oil and ivory, even though those are some of the more dominant uh, themes and topics, we'd love to hear from you. So post, Kobus and I, we respond throughout the day to, to the comments. Uh, I'm responding here in Asia hours, and then Kobus takes over the shift in the Africa schedule. So we got both uh, both worlds covered there. Once again, facebook.com slash China Africa Project. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me over at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China Africa headlines almost every day. And of course, if you want to follow this podcast, the best way is over on iTunes, but you can also find us on the BlackBerry Network in South Africa, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, uh, on Facebook. We're pretty much everywhere, so there's no excuse not to listen to it and share it with your friends. So until next time, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast.